look, you've got to wake up and you have to understand just how central all these bloody stories were for so many centuries of Christians. And it's not just the stories that are being told, but it's how everything gets depicted culturally and artistically, right? These, these are fundamental to the history of Christianity. The George slaying a dragon, that dates 13th century with the, the composition of the Golden Legend, which was this compilation of saint stories. You've got the story of Ignatius, who's the Bishop of Antioch in the, the early second century. As he's being hauled from Antioch to Rome to be thrown to the beasts, he says, don't screw it up, meaning let me die. I want to be tossed to the beast. I want my flesh to be ground up in lion's jaws because he says, this is just what it means to be a true disciple. But it's a little unsettling, right? This isn't like the prosperity gospel, you know, that you hear in late 20th, early 21st century America, where, you know, Jesus wants you to be healthy and wealthy, right? This is the Jesus who wants you following him in death. Now, the question is, though, do we take the stories at face value and say, aha, and these literary sources that are being written by Christians to celebrate the martyrs, therefore represent what actually happened? I don't think we do that. They're certainly not the only skeptics, and it's not as if people throughout the ages have just sort of swallowed these stories down. In fact, dating back to the 17th century, there was a whole circle of, of Jesuits that ultimately came to be called the Bolandists after their founder, this guy Jean Boland, who's, who saw it as their mission to go out and collect the story of every saint that had ever been written. They're trying to suss out, like, what's the kernel of historicity here? Like, what, what's actually true? And they have a damn hard time doing it. Paula Fredrickson once said, it's not as if we have tens of thousands of Christians being killed in antiquity, but we do have some number of Christians being killed and tens of thousands of people reading these stories. My guest today is Dr. Kyle Smith, author of Cult of the Dead, A Brief History of Christianity. Kyle Smith is an associate professor and director of the History of Religions program at the University of Toronto, an award-winning teacher. He is the author of five books about Christian saints and martyrs. His most recent book, Cult of the Dead, A Brief History of Christianity, tells the fascinating story of how the world's most widespread religion is steeped in the memory of its martyrs. If the death and resurrection of Jesus is the most central thing to this religion of Christianity, then what follows from that is being like Jesus. And in order to be like Jesus, you're not getting rich and being prosperous and worrying about who the next president is. To be like Jesus is to be willing to die for your belief. Christians, are you doing that today? Where's the, where's the standards at? Where's the bar at? We're going to talk about that in this discussion. Kyle Smith, stay tuned. Welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. And today I'm with Dr. Kyle Smith, and uh, today we're talking about the martyrdoms. First of all, I just want to link in the description for the book. Can you just give us a little quick rundown about the book? And so if anyone hasn't heard of it yet, and the we're going to talk about that as well. Yeah, sure. So uh, the most recent one is called Cult of the Dead, A Brief History of Christianity. And this is the first book that I've written that's not just for, you know, seven other people who read the same sorts of, th same sorts of things that I do. It's actually for, you know, your listeners, right? For you, for uh, intelligent people who are non-specialists in the field, but who read a lot of nonfiction, who are interested in history and uh, are interested, especially, I think, in, uh, I hope, in the cult of the saints. And, um, you know, when I use that word cult, you know, I, we, we jump right to like Jim Jones and David Koresh and back alleys and that sort of thing. I don't mean it like that. Uh, when I or, or other scholars use that term cult, uh, you're using it to refer to the Christian care of the dead. So all of the ritual practice, I mean, you know, think of the word agriculture, right? It means care for the fields. If you talk about cultivating a child's, you know, love of music, you're nurturing it, right? So it means care. Uh, so 
what the book looks at is all of the ritual practices, whether you're talking about the veneration of relics, the name and date of a, of a saint when that saint died. Often we're talking about martyrs here that's on the calendar. So the sort of annual practice by which that saint is venerated, the story about the saints, shrines that were built in their honor, pilgrimages to those shrines. So the book moves chronologically, basically from the time of Jesus up past the Protestant Reformations and the Catholic Counter-Reformation, uh, 16th and going even beyond 17th, 18th centuries, uh, to tell this story that puts the, the martyrs at the center of the story of Christianity. Yeah, and you're definitely, you're definitely right. It's, it's definitely a really smooth and easy and well, and it's, I, I've, I've enjoyed it so far. I've never finished oh, it, great. but the, uh, I think I'm like about halfway through and it's, it's, it feels like it's for anyone to read. It's very, it's really well written. And thank uh, you. It's, and I, I really enjoyed it so far and I recommend it links in the description. My first question is about why do you think that these martyrdom stories are so important? Yeah. Um, well, I think what they're doing here is attempting to idealize uh, this idea of dying for Christ as something that's that's super important. And you don't have to go very far. You don't have to wait until later antiquity, because really you don't really start seeing these stories as sort of narratives, as like, you know, uh, extended stories about a particular person develop really until the third century. Um, and then most of them are kind of after the second half of the third century into the fourth century and then and then even later. So a lot of these are being written uh, in deep retrospect, you know, even after the time of Constantine and the legalization and the promotion of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. They're being written even after that. Um, but why are they important? Um, well, you don't have to go very far to get to the roots of this. You can look in the Bible itself. I mean, first of all, just look at the Acts of the Apostles uh, and look at look uh, at that story. I mean, if you think about how Jesus quotes, uh, or the Gospels rather quote Jesus as giving this warning to his disciples that they're going to be dragged, uh, you know, before kings and governors that are going to be flogged all for the sake of his name. So you've got that warning right there. You've got the story in the Acts of the Apostles of the death of Stephen that is who is traditionally celebrated as the first Christian martyr, um, casually omitting the fact that Christianity really didn't exist as a thing at, at the point that you know, it was being narrated for the time of his death. Um, but he, or, or whoever's writing the Acts of the Apostles, Luke Acts, right? We typically call this two volume set. Um, but whoever's writing that story about Stephen, uh, there's a lot of stuff that is intentionally putting him as somebody who is dying for Christ, right? He repeats Jesus's words from the cross that are used in Luke's gospel. So in Luke's gospel, uh, you know, Jesus says, Father, receive my spirit as he's dying. Well, Stephen takes this and puts a little twist on it. He says, Lord Jesus received my spirit. So already in the New Testament itself, um, you've got this emphasis on dying for Christ as this important path. And it just goes on from there, right? You, you go to the second century, you've got the story, out, you know, this is outside of the Bible, but you've got the story of Ignatius, who's the Bishop of Antioch in the, the early second century, who's right, who writes a lot of letters, some of which were probably written later or heavily embellished by later authors, but some of which were probably written by himself, right? By Ignatius himself in the early second century, which is amazing. Um, and he writes one, one that's regarded as authentic to the Romans, this letter to the Romans. And he tells them as he's being hauled from Antioch to Rome to be thrown to the beasts, he says, don't, don't screw it up. Meaning, let me die. I want to be tossed to the beast. I want my flesh to be ground up in lion's jaws because he says, this is just what it means to be a, to be a true disciple. You know, and once you start going down this path and reading, you know, not just about the apostles, most of those stories are, are much, much later, uh, but Stephen, Ignatius and others, and it just kind of snowballs uh, and accelerates as you get, especially, as I said, as you get to the third and the fourth centuries, but it's a little unsettling, right? This isn't like the prosperity gospel, you know, that you hear in like late 20th, early 21st century America, where, you know, Jesus wants you to be healthy and wealthy, right? Uh, I mean, th this is the Jesus who wants you following him in death. Right. Uh, it's, it's bizarre stuff. And, but it's all right there. And, you know, I just think you have to pay attention to, uh, 
to reading it like this and to and to putting once you start putting the the saints and the martyrs at the forefront um it's it's beat you over the head with however present they are and however present these stories are throughout the history of christianity you you just made such a good point is that these early dedicated followers of jesus um well as early as we can like pick them up on you know in history like second early second century late first early second these are these types of people are not in society you know worrying about politics and who's going to be the next emperor of the roman empire like we need to vote for this like it's not like these are people who are dropping out of society who are willing to die for their cause that's a this is a different type of movement than we see today whereas people are like oh you know vote, we better vote republican and uh, you gotta like it's not it's not like that it's a different type of christianity you know yeah it is absolutely um and you know as i said the the stories just multiply and it's not just the stories right uh i think what's important and as i was saying we what i'm trying to do with this book is first of all i'm much less interested in the historical nuts and bolts of any particular story. Did this actually happen as the story narrates it? I think that that's an important question, but I don't think we can ever really actually get there. The, the interesting thing here is, um, is that the stories exist, right? Um, to me, that's much more interesting because it says that generations upon generations of Christians have been telling these stories, and it's not just one, it's hundreds, many hundreds, They've been copying them down. They've been translating them into different languages, not just Latin, not just Greek, but Syriac, Ethiopic, Armenian, Coptic, Old Slavonic, etc., etc., etc. And that uh, these dates on the calendar, the homilies that are preached in, in honor of the martyrs, right? As I said, the shrines, the pilgrimages, it's all of these physical practices that go way beyond just storytelling. It's not just something somebody's pulling down off of a shelf. Right, but this becomes central to the cultural expression of Christianity in late antiquity and the early Middle Ages. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. That's a really, really good way to put it. Now, when do you when do these legends about the martyrs begin to be told? Yeah, well, I mean, as I mentioned before, I mean, we have uh, we have this first Christian martyr with St. Stephen in the Acts of the Apostles itself, which, I mean, depending on how you go about dating when that was written, I'm kind of more inclined to take uh, the argument that it's probably early second century rather than first century. Um, so you've got that. Um, and then, you, you know, you have, uh, you have, for example, Tertullian, uh, who's writing fairly early on you know, in the, the late second century. Uh, and he mentions the martyrs, you have these letters from Ignatius in the, first, in the second century as well. Um, but really, it's not until the third century, um, whether the early third century or especially the middle of the third century, that you start seeing this genesis of, of a narrative. And the first collection of texts that we have is actually by, uh, by Eusebius, uh, who lived in Caesarea, which is where uh, Pontius Pilate, Roman prefect, uh, lived as well. So you're talking, this is Caesarea Maritima, uh, Maritime Caesarea on the coast okay. of what's now Israel. Yeah, you've been there. Okay, exactly. So Eusebius is writing in the early fourth century and in his, um, his great church history, uh, he included, he went, he went through several different versions, but he included a, a short version of the Martyrs of Palestine. And this was a collection of stories that he wrote himself uh, about martyrs that he either had witnessed or he had heard about um, during the, the persecution of the emperor Diocletian in the very beginning of the fourth century. It's traditionally dated to 303 to 313, that, that persecution. So Eusebius has this collection of stories that, uh, and the long version of which, by the way, were writ originally written in Greek, but they're lost. Um, which is kind of shocking, right? Because if this is so central, like why don't we have these stories in Greek? We have a Syriac translation um, that comes pretty early from the fifth, from the early fifth century. Um, but it, it's it's interesting to me how it's all these other sort of ritual practices that seem to have been important rather than copying down, you know, versions of these stories. Because we have a letter, for example, from Pope Gregory. This is Gregory the Great at the end of the sixth century, 
he's writing to this other bishop in Alexandria um, in, in Egypt. And uh, he, this is clearly an exchange of letters. And this bishop had written to him kind of saying, hey, do you have a copy of all of these stories that Eusebius talks about? And Gregory kind of throws up his hands and says, well, we've got this little slim volume that we use, you know, which, which basically is the calendar of the saints. And we celebrate the martyrs. We talk about the martyrs. He's like, but I don't really have the collection of stories. So uh, that, I think, is a, an intriguing problem for us. Uh, and especially because, you know, we... I'll speak collectively here and just say we are much more interested in these texts, you know, that are telling us these the histories of these people, where that didn't really seem to have been the case so much in in late antiquity. The stories were important, yes, but they were either either they were orally circulated or that you you know about the martyrs through the uh, through the homilies, you know, that are preached on their feast day, um, but. The the long uh, that was a long and winding answer to the the short answer to your question is probably the acceleration of them is third century. So that's like the that's the time where th these stories are are hot and popular and they're really being told in in more frequently than before. Because and, and Begin, beginning to be so, yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because um there are a lot of people on the skeptic side who because of because of these stories coming in the third century or whatever they obviously question if that if it's if these are just legends or not um but at the same time i think there it's fair to say that the idea of people going to their deaths for the faith is probably something that is legit it's probably something that's actually happening and yeah sorry you were like no, that, that was it that was it yeah, uh, no, that that's true. And um, well, so two things on that. Um, first, uh, Daniel Boyarin, who teaches out at Berkeley and uh, has a book about uh, martyrdom and early Christianity and Judaism, he he has a line that I'm very very fond of quoting because I like it when people just kind of distill things down to the bumper sticker slogan. Yeah, that's sometimes too simplistic, but oftentimes it kind of hits it right. And so what Boyarin said is. Being killed is an event. Martyrdom is a literary form, a genre, right? So, you know, were people killed in antiquity? Yes, there were a lot of people killed in antiquity. The Romans, the Persians, and other ancient empires were exceedingly good about torturing and killing people in very novel and uh, gruesomely painful ways. So, for sure, people died. Were some of those people Christians? Absolutely, right? Were there, uh, were there, uh, particular periods of persecution beginning in the mid third century, also in, as we mentioned with Diocletian in the early fourth century. Absolutely. Those things happen too. Um, now the question is though, do we take the stories at face value and say, aha, and these literary sources that are being written by Christians to celebrate the martyrs, therefore represent what actually happened? I don't think we do that. And, you know, the, the people that you're mentioning or listeners uh, right now, viewers right now, um, they're certainly not the only skeptics. And it's not as if uh, people throughout the ages have just sort of swallowed these stories down. In fact, dating back to the 17th century, there was a whole circle of, of Jesuits that ultimately came to be called the Bolandists after their founder, this guy, Jean Boland, who's, who saw it as their mission to go out and collect the story of every saint that had ever been written in any language. And their work still continues today. They still wow. exist today, right? So they're, they're often uh, regarded as the, the oldest collaborative scholarly enterprise in the world, and certainly the oldest ongoing one in the world. And, you know, part of their mission was to sort of edit out, to come up with ways of saying, uh, a, a ways of classifying the stories and say, well, these are fables, these are epics, these are, you know, this, of the sorts of thing that begin once upon a time. And like, they're trying to suss out, like, what's the kernel of historicity here? Like, what, what's actually true? And they have a damn hard time doing it. Um, and in fact, one of the most famous Bolandists, as they're called, of recent memory, uh, a French scholar by the name of Hippolyte Delahaye, who died, uh, I think, in the early 1940s after a fairly long scholarly career, you know, he, he in multiple books of his, right, he kind of gets perplexed and throws up his hands. You can sort of see him throwing up his hands as you're reading the page of saying, you know, if we had 
these maybe transcripts from trials, for, you know, from Roman trials, like that would be great. Here's like authentic sources. He's like, but we don't really have those. And what we do have, like, we don't know how much of it has been, you know, interpolated, edited by, by later hands. Maybe the, the stuff we have from Eusebius is pretty good. He'll, he'll admit that. But he's kind of like, that's kind of that's kind of it. And really the explosion of the, the literary nature of these stories is, is kind of post Eusebius. So what's in these stories that's true? Um, I, I don't think we can, we can really say. I think it's extraordinarily difficult to say what could be true. Um, but you also can't prove a negative, right? You can't say that person didn't exist, that person wasn't killed. And again, back to my earlier point, to me, it's the existence of the stories and their, their continued use and their continued importance among Christians. That's the more interesting thing, right? And that's the thing that you can kind of hang your hat on and say, these, are, these stories are important. It doesn't matter if they're true or not. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it matters to some people. It matters to some people very much. But for me, that's not really a question that, that keeps me up at night. Yeah, well said. Now, um, Polycarp. Yeah. What's the story of Polycarp's death, and why is it that some, I guess scholars would say there's different years? I think it's like a five-year difference on when they say he died. Yeah, um, well, it, it's actually, I think the question is more about when the story about him was written, not exactly when he died, whether it was, you know, 150, 155, 160, or something like that. It's typically dated to, to 155, but the question is, do we, with the story that we have about him that purports to have been written by an eyewitness, is this eyewitness, uh, you know, relating the events of the middle of the second century as they happened? And I think, especially in light of an important article written by Candida de Moss, uh, a rethinking, uh, I can't remember exactly the title, but I think it was something to the effect of rethinking the date of Polycarp or something. Um, you know, she says, look, we got to move it back, presumably into the third century. It's not the middle of the second century. And so the story is, is pretty interesting. So Polly, I'll give you the story and then sort of explain why the dating is uh, an important uh, issue here. Um, so Polycarp is the bishop or was the bishop of the city of, of Smyrna. This is modern day Izmir on the Aegean coast of Turkey. Okay. And, uh, you know, Smyrna is mentioned in the book of Revelation as one, you know, one of the seven churches, of the apocalypse, etc. So according to the story about him, um, there's some sort of persecution that's going on. Polycarp has kind of quietly retreated to a country, a state, rather than, you know, get caught up in the fray. He's not outwardly presenting himself and waving the flag of Christianity and saying, kill me, right? He's not volunteering himself for death. Um, eventually, he gets arrested. He gets dragged into Smyrna's arena. He's interrogated. He's uh, bound to a stake to be burned alive. As it happens, the flames sort of arc around him like a cocoon. Uh, the text uh, in a wonderful line says, like a, like a linen sail filled by the wind. So you can sort of imagine him being protected here. You've clearly got this allusion to the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel going on here. Yeah. And that then it, uh, uh, the text also talks about the sweet smell of frankincense, like as you know, you don't, you're not smelling burning flesh here, you're smelling wonderful incense. This is the olfactory x marking the spot of holiness you get a lot of these sorts of and it smelled like incense in these stories okay um so eventually because the flames aren't flames aren't killing him he's got to be run through with the sword and then all of his blood quenches the flames and then uh the fire is relit to burn away his flesh from the bone from his bones and there's a couple of things that are interesting first of all when he's being dragged into the arena it's on the back of a donkey He's first interrogated by somebody named Herod. So there are all these sorts of intentional parallels, right, to the story of, you know, of Jesus um, to put forward this idea. We mentioned Candida Moss before. I'll mention her again. Uh, the title of one of her books is The Other Christs uh, about the martyrs, right, of these people who are recapitulating. Uh, the death of Jesus, or being this, this sort of second Christs, so to speak. Um, so that's interesting, both in terms of the narrate, the narration of the story and its connection to the story of the death of Jesus, and also the fact that we have this sort of long story purporting to be from the second century. 
But what's also super interesting is that after the flesh has been burned from his bones, the text says that the Christians of Smyrna swooped in to gather his bones, regarding them as more valuable than gold and precious jewels, and that they deposited them in a, in a, you know, a fitting place and that would, they would annually go there to venerate, like to tell his story and to venerate his, his mortal remains, right? So you have here seemingly a very theologically sophisticated beginnings of, but more than just the beginnings of, this cult of the saints that I was talking about earlier, right? Where it's not just the story that's important, but it's the physical relics. It's going there on a particular day of the calendar and remembering this guy as this other Christ. And what Moss argues, I think quite convincingly, um, is that this just, this just does not fit what we know at least from our other sources, of a second century context. So you're pushing back the sort of beginnings uh, of, of, of this sort of ritual veneration and this sort of sophisticated uh, narrative into the third century. That's, that's why he's important. He's not, it's not exactly a household name. I, I realize most people are like, oh, Polycarp, yeah, I heard of him. You know, people have heard of, you know, St. Sebastian, St. Stephen, you know, all of the apostles, but, uh, but Polycarp is, is important because of the, the purported earliness uh, of, of, the, of the story about him. And even if it's not by an eyewitness in the, in the middle of the second century, it's still super early and super important from uh, a historical perspective. Yeah. What are some of the other most important martyrdom stories that are central to this faith, to, this tradi- to these traditions? Yeah, I mean, certainly the stories of the apostles, um, because, I mean, you're also talking about uh, to whom, right? Um, so, I mean, there's going to be a lot of martyrs that I could name who are going to be important for, for Catholics or for Orthodox Christians, um, who for Protestants are not going to be so important, these sort of later ones that are happening, fourth, fifth, or fourth century, whatever. But, um, you know, even, uh, you know, I mentioned that part of the, the book really goes beyond the Protestant Reformation. So uh, if you look in the 16th century, you've got this guy in England, John Fox, who's telling the story of those Protestants who were killed by uh, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, right? Um, and what's, what's interesting there is, first of all, he's trying to connect those people, those Protestants who are being killed in the 16th century in this unbroken sort of chain of, of suffering and persecution going all the way back to Jesus and the apostles, right? He's wanting to have some sort of historical validation uh, for, um, for his version of Christianity, the Christianity that he's practicing, right? Because one of the, the pointed barbs of the, the, the Catholic uh, counter-reformation was always, where was your church before Luther, right? So a lot of Protestants in this era were attempting to create this sort of historical trajectory to say, hey, we're just as connected to the ancient past as you are. Um, so th- that's to say uh, that it depends on who you're talking to, um, but that, you know, uh, certainly the apostles and the stories of the apostles' death deaths, most of which aren't being written, by the way, until at least, you know, the fourth century or later, um, those stories are important for for all Christians. Um, and intriguingly, with the exception of John, who dies of old age, and then Judas, uh, whose death who's, doesn't die as a martyr, right? Yeah, but his death is narrated in two different ways in the New Testament itself. Either he hanged himself or he fell headlong into a field, uh, as it says in hanging is in Matthew, the falling into a field is in Acts. And then Peter comments that uh, uh, that his that his uh, his belly burst open, that his bowels gushed out. Right, you got to add in the the gory detail. Um, so with th- those two as the as the only exceptions, there's stories about every single other apostle dying as a martyr, um, and it's just you know one more gory than the next. Uh, you know Simon gets sawn in half, and uh, Bartholomew gets flayed. Right, has his skin cut off, um, and. You, you know, if you look, if you go to the Vatican, uh, if you go into the, uh, uh, in the Sistine Chapel, the altar wall fresco done by Michelangelo, hovering on this cloud right at Jesus's feet is this naked and thickly bearded apostle Bartholomew, who's holding up, you know, uh, a bag of his own skin in one hand and a cleansing knife uh, in the other, right? So again, back to this idea of like, 
the story gets told and told and told again, not just literarily, not just orally, not just in homilies, but there on the wall, right, in, in art, hundreds of years after the fact. So you're still repeating this. And I mean, you've got to, what, what I want to do with this book is say, look, you've got to wake up and you have to understand just how central all these bloody stories were for so many centuries of Christians. And it's not just the stories that are being told, but it's how everything gets depicted culturally and artistically, right? These, these are fundamental to the history of Christianity. And I think, you know, for a lot of us in 21st century United States or Canada, we just don't have that sort of appreciation of how important the martyrs not just were, but continued to be. Such a good point. You really, yeah. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, now I want to get into some, some history before the church and the reign of Diocletian. And yeah. you, when, when we talk about Diocletian and Christianity, he, he comes off as like, almost like another Nero. He's like this anti-Christian. He's persecuting them. Um, how bad is it? How bad was it under Diocletian? Is it, are things not as bad as we think, or is it worse than we think? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I mentioned before Daniel Boyarn, and I like these little pithy phrases that kind of sum things up. So, Paul, I'll give you another one. Uh, Paula Fredrickson once said, it's not as if we have tens of thousands of Christians being killed in antiquity, but we do have some number of Christians being killed and tens of thousands of people reading these stories about the few who were killed. Right. And it's the same sort of thing with John Fox, right? You read his book and you think that, that Queen Mary is just out killing Protestants every, you know, for sport every weekend going on for years upon years upon years. And it's thousands of them all told she burned maybe 300 people over the course of a few years, right? That's not an inconsequential number. I'm not, I'm not dismissing it, but it's not the sort of, you know, uh, uh, persecutor around every corner and like everybody fearing for their lives. It's not genocidal, right? And that's not the case either with, but, but, but you get that impression from reading the texts, right? Right. The same sort of thing is true with Diocletian, right? I mean, his name gets mentioned, even if you read the Roman Catholic martyrology, um, you know, this sort of list of people who were killed on each day of the year, you can Google it, Roman Catholic martyrology, you can find it, you can read about whose day it is today. Um, and Diocletian comes up all the damn time in terms of people who were supposedly killed by him. Um, but, and, you know, yeah, for certain people, uh, it might not have ended so well, but were, did you have an entire empire for a decade of Christians who were, you know, living in their basements and, you know, afraid to go outside? No. Um, but also, how, how can we access, like, what was it like? I think it's really difficult for us to be able to do so because the, we're forced to rely upon, in many cases, these stories that are being written by Christians after the fact that we know are somewhat fanciful or have this sort of generic and very repetitive uh, sort of arc to them. You know, the martyr gets hauled in, the martyr gets interrogated, the martyr speaks truth to power, you know, then they end up getting tortured. Will you relent now? Will you offer sacrifice now? No, I won't. Then you get killed. And right. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough to know, you know, which, ones of these can be somehow seen as reliable and which are just kind of repeating the same theme over and over again. Interesting. It's such a, yeah. such a fascinating time. The, I, I don't know what it is about the, the gap between early Christianity, you know, late first, early second century to the time of Constantine, like the in between, I think is such a fascinating time because there's so many diverse different groups of Christianity. And then you have all yeah. the legends popping up. You have the Diocletian time. Very fascinating. It, 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 it is a time period that there's just so much to look into, you know. Um, Enough to keep me occupied for yeah. the rest of my career. <laughs> yeah. And a few people's careers, you know. It's, it's a lot of yeah. work to be done. Um, St. George is a famous um, saint. You know, there's depictions of him battling dragons. He's he's well known, I would say. Um, the legends attributed him as a martyr. Can you tell us about this and how did it develop over time? Yeah. Um, so I'm not really sure when the first legend of St. George uh, that we have occurred. 
or, or sorry, was written. Um, he's said to have been killed. He was uh, a member of uh, Emperor Diocletian. There's that name again. Uh, his elite uh, Praetorian guard and was killed um, once it became clear that uh, that he was a Christian. Um, the but, uh, you know again um, did this person exist? I mean, who knows? You know, how was he killed? We're we're not really sure. Um, but the legend about him developed um, mainly as a result, uh, and all of the George uh, slaying a dragon, that dates, uh, the, the popularization of that story dates to the 13th century with the, the composition of the Golden Legend, which was this compilation of saint stories uh, written by a, a bishop of, of Genoa uh, at the time. And it was intended mainly as kind of um, an encyclopedia of saints for uh, for the Dominican order, you know, this sort of traveling preaching order, uh, one of the, the famous medieval mendicant orders, so to speak. Um, and, you know, they, they wanted to have this kind of compilation so that they could preach about these saints on their on their feast days. So it ended up, by the way, that book becoming a, a huge bestseller. There were, you know, we've got well over a thousand complete manuscript copies of, you know, from uh, uh, from the Middle Ages uh, of that text. And once you have the rise of print, there were more versions and more translations of the golden legend than there were of the Bible initially. Wow. Um, so super important, again, just to highlight how important right, the saints stories were for other generations of Christians, though most of us today don't really know them so much, so well. Um, but in the golden legend, and I'm not sure where the author was getting this, but it was presumably from some earlier story. And I don't know when that originated. Um, George ends up in Libya, and there's this dragon that's pestering the local population. It basically is re requiring a meal every once in a while, or, or else he's going to, you know, decimate everybody. And you know, the 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 town or the kingdom is um, really getting sick of this dragon, and George ends up, uh, of course, killing it. And hence, all of the amazing paintings that you get from uh, uh, the later Middle Ages, the Renaissance of George slaying the dragon. Um, and then there's stories, too, about how the Crusaders, who are attacking Jerusalem, trying to get over Jerusalem's walls to reclaim the Holy Land for, uh, from the Muslims uh, for Christians, right, um, that they see this, uh, this vision of, of a soldier draped in a red cross on white, right? And then, you know, they take it as a vision of St. George. So he, uh, he goes from this you know, early Christian military man in the Roman army to basically becoming like this medieval knight uh, in shining armor who's, you know, slaying dragons and like supporting the crusaders. Um, so the, the sort of afterlives of all of these saints and, the, the, and how the stories change depending on the circumstances of the people who are interested in that particular saint and what they want to add to the story about him, that's also totally fascinating to me, right? How St. Sebastian, for example, again, uh, you know, here's somebody who's in the, the military, gets killed, um, you know, first by arrows, but he doesn't actually die. And then he gets, you know, beaten to death with a, with a club and thrown into the sewer. Um, as I say in the book, like you can forgive all of those, you know, Renaissance artists who painted the, the nude soldier being shot through with arrows rather than the guy in the sewer, you know, who's been beaten to death. Um, Obviously, I, I think I'd take that visual image as well. Um, but then, you know, he he later then becomes a, a gay icon, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> in the 20th century, right? So I'm like, even somebody like that, who who just like has this persistent life that goes well beyond, um, you know, uh, well beyond the text of the story. All, all of these saints have have lived a lot longer dead than they ever did alive. Wow, that's a good way to put yeah. it. Thought about that. Interesting. Now, so, some of these martyrdom legends—is there any of them that scholars say probably are didn't happen, are not historical? I mean, it, again, it depends on who you're talking to. Um, if you're talking to me, it's okay. Fine, there might be some elements of truth in in some of them, um, but how we go about determining what those elements are. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, so I get, I get your point because it's like if we can't get to that, then what's the use of even? At, I mean, not, not saying we shouldn't ask it, but what's more useful that we talk about why the story's there, or if we just sit there and 
we're stuck in square one asking if it happened or not. Whether then right. get get something out of dissecting what the story actually means. Right, right. I think that there's that persistent interest. Um, and it's not misplaced. I understand why people have that interest. They're like, did this really happen? Is this person really a martyr? Did this happen as it, as it did? And uh, I think that those sorts of questions are important to ask, but I think we also have to recognize the limits of our knowledge, uh, which are profound, profound limits. And that, um, as I've said already a couple of times, to me, the more interesting thing is the persistence of the stories and what they've done culturally, rather than the questions that we're not really going to be able to answer very well, if at all, uh, in terms of what is true or not, right? Um, and, you know, uh, my colleague uh, and friend who teaches at Columbia, Elizabeth Castelli, she had a book 20 years ago about uh, called Martyrdom and Memory, Early Christian Culture Making. And the last chapter of that book, um, she dealt with the 1999 Columbine school shooting. And the reason why she brought it up is because there was this young uh, girl, high school student named Cassie Bernal, who one of the shooters uh, supposedly, you know, has her cornered in the library or whatever and says to her, are you a Christian? And apparently she says yes. And he says why? And then shoots her in the head. Right. And, you know, her mom like published a book about, you know, uh, her, her dead daughter, you know, she said, yes, I think there was like some movie made. Right. But even like the, what actually happened in 1999 in in that room during this horrific incident, you know, all of that is, you know, kind of called into question about like, did it happen this way? Did it happen this way? I mean, there are other eyewitnesses who said, you know, such and such happened, you know, was she even asked this question? Why would she have been asked that question? Um, so again, it's like, that doesn't mean that then you toss out, uh, the mother's book or, you know, or all of the people who are, you know, inspired by her story, right? It doesn't have to be true for it to have meaning. And, you know, even Delahaye himself, I mentioned him before, the, the great Bolandist from the, from the 20th century, you know, he kind of makes a similar sorts of conclusion, similar sort of conclusion, uh, in, in his own work where he says, look, you know, sometimes poetry can have greater meaning than narrative history, right? Um, so that, that's, that's cold comfort to some, and people, some people I understand, you know, are not really gonna be satisfied with that sort of explanation or, or say, uh, or dismiss me as saying, well, you know, it's not just stories. We have to find some sort of thing, you know, and you're, you're being dismissive when uh, you say it's just stories. Look, I mean, stories move us in ways that nothing else does. Right. And I, I, I always tell my undergrad students, like when you look back at particular theological moments in early Christianity, if there is some sort of theological idea that gets presented, like for example, um, uh, that that Mary had children after Jesus, right? And you don't like that. Let's say you don't like that. What do you do? Do you write a theological treatise like disputing that point by point, which you know only a few other scholars are going to read, uh, or how is that even going to circulate? Or do you tell a different story and then get the story circulating? And you know, my answer is you tell a different story, and that's where we ended up with the Proto-Evangelium of James, the second-century Greek text that goes out of its way to say that Mary was not only a virgin before getting engaged to Joseph, and in fact, she wasn't ever engaged to Joseph. She's presented as very young. Joseph is presented as very old. Why? Because they never get married. Joseph is her guardian, her protector. So then she's a virgin as well when she gives birth to Jesus, and then even after and perpetually, right? So that story, we still hear, we still, it still gets told. Most people aren't aware of it, I, I realize that. But uh, you wonder why there's an ox in the ass in sort of every little Christmas crash that you've ever seen that are always right behind Jesus. Are there an ox and an ass mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke, which are the only two of the four of the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus's birth? No, there's no ox, there's no ass. Where do those come from? It comes from the Proto-Evangelium of James, right? So we, you know, we are, I think, uh, you know, blithely unaware of these elements, these persistent elements of, of early Christianity in things that we see all the time, like that, right, uh, at Christmas time. 
Um, but that again, if I, I can't say it enough that the stories are really important and you can't just dismiss them as only stories. That's such a good point. And like the artists in this, in the Renaissance are drawing from all these extra stories as well. These legends. And like you mentioned in the, the artwork of the nativity, like, you know, like there's something from another story that's not in the gospels or not in the canon. So yeah, that's very interesting the way you said that. Um, but I really, I want to ask you about the relics. Mm -hmm. The relics is a whole nother interesting topic in its own where there's a lot of circulating relics that are really interesting and fascinating. And it's like a whole market of this stuff. Like, can you tell us about the relics that some people might find fascinating? Yeah. Um, well, one of the, uh, one story I tell in the book is of St. Ambrose, uh, St. Ambrose of Milan, who in the year 386, he writes a letter to his sister. We've got the text of this letter. I mean, these things are amazing, right? That you've got this insight into like familial correspondence uh, from the fourth century. And so uh, Ambrose is explaining to his sister how a new basilica has been built in his city of Milan and that all of his congregation, they're, they're hounding him to find some martyr's relics and properly consecrate the church by installing the relics, you know, under the altar or inside of the altar somehow. And he says, but I can't find any relics. And somehow this sort of prophetic ardor, he says, entered his heart and he knew where to dig. And he, you know, brings over one of the junior clerics and says, you know, get a shovel, dig it up. And he finds the, the relics of these previous martyrs, uh, Gervasius and Protasius. And immediately somebody who happens to be at the site is cured of some illness as the relics are being transferred, translated is the, the term we use, as the relics are being translated from the, the original site of their burial to the church the next day or two, uh, a blind man who's there you know, to, to witness the procession is cured and uh, can now see. And once the relics are sort of installed in the church, Ambrose stands up to address his congregation and he explains to them, he says, you know, witness what you've just seen. Right, the healings of these people as a result of the power of the uh, the holy power of the saints who are in heaven, but yet via their material remains remain here as well. Right, this conduit between between earth and heaven. You know, he says, and he says also recall from scripture. This is again quoting from the Acts of the Apostles, which we've mentioned a couple of times before, where in that text. Uh, it's said that even aprons or handkerchiefs, ham handkerchiefs or aprons that are brought and Paul touches them, that if then those are t taken away, that they'll cure the sick. And Ambrose says, remember that? Well, it's the same thing here. You bring up your little handkerchief and you touch it on top of the, the relic here of Gervasius or Protasius, and it can go, you know, cure people. Um, so, I mean, this is just one story, and I, you know, I think it's important to tell a specific story because you get the, you know, full picture rather than just saying, oh, this was all so important. Um, but I mean, the 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 commerce, for lack of a better term, um, in bones and the spread of these bones, um, you know, not just in Milan but in every little church throughout the realm, um, was extraordinarily important beginning in the fourth century. Um, but we've also got all of these. You don't just have to have the bodily remains, right? Because according to Christian tradition, uh, Jesus was bodily assumed into heaven, you know, after his, his resurrection. Okay. So do you have any relics of Jesus? Well, uh, the, the one bodily remain, uh, this is a little comical is, uh, the foreskin, which is yeah. supposedly in Notre Dame. Um, not sure why that would have been preserved, but, um, somebody had the genius idea of yes, but there's one thing that was left of him. Right. Um, but what, what's much more important, of course, are the instruments that touched him in, in his last hours during his death, right? So the splinters from the wood of the true cross, the crown of thorns, the linen shrouds in which he was wrapped, right? So everybody's heard of the Shroud of Turin. That's quite late, right? And, uh, you know, I, I think that the first record of, of, of that circulating is from the mid-14th century, if I recall. Yeah. Um, but there were, there were many of other uh, uh, cloths associated with Jesus that circulated long before uh, the, sh the Shroud of Turin. And, you know, people went to, to great effort and great lengths and great expense uh, to acquire these sorts of things. Um, and uh, uh, Louis IX, uh, St. Louis, 
um, who was a crusading king himself, supposedly acquired the, the actual crown of thorns. And you'll, you'll no doubt remember when uh, Notre Dame and that horrible fire back in 2019, well, what, what, what is supposedly the crown of thorns, or at least that St. Louis thought was, uh, was saved by the Parisian fire brigade you know, three, four years ago, right, during, during that fire. So uh, the persistence of things that are still supposedly identified with Jesus. Um, but I mean, how long do we have, right? We could have, we could spend hours just talking about uh, the stories associated with various forearms or toenails or various other things and, uh, and how, uh, how opulently, you know, these things were preserved in their reliquaries, the, you know, in jewel encrusted boxes. Um, but that's, that's the, that's a story for uh, an entire episode on yeah. uh, the stuff of medieval Christendom. Yeah. yeah there's a, there's too much to even mention. One of them I just want to quickly ask you about is the image of Odessa. Yeah. What's the what's the story about this one? Yeah, so this is a uh, a complicated one, but um, to try and make it uh, as interesting as possible, we have from Eusebius. Uh, we've talked about this bishop in the fourth century, who's this great church historian. We he preserves this story from apparently the archives of the city of Edessa. This is, by the way, not to be confused with Odessa in uh, uh, in Ukraine, but. Ed- yeah, yeah. But Edessa, which is uh, in a small town in what's now southeastern Turkey. OK, um, so he so Eusebius preserves this story of a king in the first century in Edessa who's got some a guy by the name of Abgar, who's got some ailment, unclear what, and that he writes this letter to Jesus because he's heard that there's this miracle worker. There's this wonder worker uh, down in the Galilee. And says, hey, can you, uh, if you got time, can you come up to Edessa and heal me? I've got this terrible thing going on. Um, and according to the legend, Jesus writes back. Either that or it was, you know, he, his response was transcribed, unclear which, um, and says, I can't, but later on, don't worry, I'll send one of my apostles to take care of you. So as the legend develops, um, Jesus's letter itself becomes this wonder-working relic that you know gets waved uh, waved about on the walls of the city to ward off the Persians during a siege uh, at some later time, um, and then the story kind of morphs as, that it wasn't uh, uh, it wasn't his messenger, the king's messenger, who brought back a letter, but that the king's messenger was an artist and he brings back a painting that he's done of Jesus that has these powers, and then eventually the story becomes some sort of image. Uh, that gets impressed on cloth. And in this version of the story, uh, you'll recall the story from when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's uh, like sweating like drops of blood, right? Um, And so apparently, you know, towels himself off. He gives it to Thomas. Thomas gives it to Thaddeus. Thaddeus eventually gets this image uh, to King Abgar. He's he's healed of of all of his ailments. Um, And then this thing, you know, becomes this this wonder-working relic uh, that saves the city that's eventually purchased in, I think, the year 944 uh, by the Byzantines and then gets enshrined in Constantinople for many, many years. Um, So again, the point here is the stories are constantly changing. There's, uh, you know, it it has complex uh, negotiations over how this story is going to be useful for the particular people who now have this object and want to talk about its power. Um, And that these things are, are so far earlier than the things that everybody has heard of, like the Shroud of Turin. And I just don't understand why the Shroud of Turin is the one that gets all the press because, Either. you know, no there's story. more interesting stories out there. Well, and the reason why the Agbar thing is so interesting is because according to Eusebius, which is, this is probably not the, you know, true or not, but it's just, the, it's fascinating that the only text that, someone has that's particular that's like claiming to be from the hand of jesus right is this letter to agbar and it's like well you would think there'd be a letter to, to peter somewhere a letter to mary somewhere a letter to anybody but instead all we have is ag this king um yeah. it's just kind of it's it's kind of fascinating you, you you're thinking to yourself why would this be the only letter that we think we have from this guy who's the most important character in Western civilization, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, you you raise a, a great point. Um, you know, but we have, you know, so again, like, did Eusebius see this? Um, or, well, I mean, he, so Eusebius, I think, is fairly trustworthy in the in the sense that, like, when he says, "I'm quoting from such and such source that I have." that then later when we if you know we don't have that source and we're like well did he really say it and then we have found the sources and we say wow he's pretty much copied it verbatim like i think he's fairly trustworthy when he says that um that we can rely on him that he's accurately reporting his sources that doesn't mean that the source is true it just means that he's accurately transcribing reporting what he says he's seen right yeah um yeah so um, but I mean, you raise a great point. Like, why is uh, why why isn't there a proliferation of letters that are supposedly by Jesus's hand? It's just this kind of one story of this Mesopotamian king that nobody's ever heard of that's buried, you know, in uh, the ecclesiastical history of Eusebius. Yeah, when it comes to Eusebius, I my favorite one of my favorite books, just in general, not even just from Eusebius, but is this this one, this uh, preparation for the gospel. Yeah. And I just, and the reason why I like it so much is it's, it's like this, uh, it's like this, what do you, what's the word? Um, tapestry of, of ancient sources. And mm-hmm. he's going through all these sources. He's going, he's going back to this guy, Sanko Nathan from this 13th century BCE, supposedly. And he's like, this is what he said. And he's going through all these different periods of time, talking about Plato and Porphyry and all these different sources. And it's like leading up to the events of, you know, Christianity. And I just, I, I think it was, a, it's a brilliant work. It really is. If you're a history yeah. lover, you should have this in your, in your, it's, it's great. I love it. Yeah. Well, I mean, Eusebius as a historian, right? I mean, he, uh, the, the culmination of history is, is Christ is the advent of, uh, you know, is the birth of Jesus. Um, and then, you know, you got to be thinking about the second coming too, but then the, the story, uh, for Eusebius that he's telling in his ecclesiastical history, um, you know, up to the time of Constantine, um, is one where the martyrs are incredibly important and that, you know, the, the persecution of Christians or the, the recognition of the fact that to be Christian means to potentially endure persecution and suffering for the sake of Jesus's name. Um, that's an important element, uh, for sure. That's a guiding principle in his sort of, in the, in the, the arc of history. And you look at other historians too, for example, uh, much later ones like like the the venerable monk Bede, who's writing in Northumbria in England in uh, in the eighth century, yeah. um, and his understanding of history, his understanding of the cosmos, his understanding of time, uh, is a series of epics. You know that are divided. You know, first you've got creation until Noah, and then Noah until this, etc. And then you know, but for him, this the sixth of the seven ages of of the universe of the world is the era that we're living in right now until the seventh era begins with the second coming of Christ and Armageddon, etc. And who for Bede are the, the heroes of the sixth era from the time of Christ until the time of Christ's second coming? The martyrs, of course, right? right. Um, so again, like even like when you're, when you're trying to encapsulate or trying to understand how a lot of these Christian writers understood what history itself was, Right. There are hinge points, of course, with Jesus and the second coming, um, but that also then highlight the importance of the saints and the martyrs. And I think Revelation really highlights it where it talks about how the people that's going to be ruling in the next uh, millennium are the people who died, who bled and died for, you know, for their faith or I think it's something along those lines. So it's. This is something that is clearly portrayed as important, you know? Yep, absolutely. Last question is about St. Nicholas. And how does he become, what is it, a fourth century figure in Turkey into being Santa Claus, basically? Like, how how does he get connected to Christmas? Yeah. Uh, well, so this is actually the next book that I'm, that I'm writing. Um, really? Not, not, yeah. Not this trajectory necessarily, but um, I'm, I'm kind of billing it at least to myself because I haven't actually started writing it yet. It's more sort of in the research phase is a, is a cultural biography of St. Nicholas. So looking at where 
certain stories about this this ancient saint, uh, this medieval and ancient saint, um, how those have worked in certain places and become deeply important to certain peoples, right? Um, and then sort of extrapolating these things out. Um, so how does he get, uh, how does he connected with Christmas? Um, a lot of it has to do with simply where his place on the calendar was and is. So the Feast of St. Nicholas is December 6th. So you're talking less than three weeks uh, before Christmas, right? And you, there's an ancient story about him as a gift giver. Um, and depending on how sanitized uh, of a version of the story you're going to get, it's either these three girls don't have a dowry because their father is very, very poor, or because their father is very, very poor and these girls can't be married, that they're about to be sold off into prostitution. Um, and so Nicholas hears about this, apparently, and uh, gathers together some money. Perhaps at Christmas time, you've ever gotten one of those little sacks of those uh, gold coins, like gold foil, the chocolate coins, right? Yeah. So, so he gathers together a sack of money and then goes and throws it through the window. And of course, in some versions of the stories, the girls have their stockings drying by the hearth and you know the gold happens to fall into their stocking. This is all sounding very familiar. Right. And you know, so it happens for the one girl, it happens another night for the second, it happens another for the third. And you know, finally the father catches Nicholas in the act on you know, the third time and he you know, is sworn to silence. So he only tells this story after you know, Nicholas's death. So you have this idea of Nicholas as this gift giver from very early on. And Nicholas as, you know, this sort of patron of young people. Um, there's another story involving him where uh, there are these, these three schoolboys who are traveling to or from wherever they were in school. And they stay at an inn and the innkeeper is apparently out of meat. And so he kills these three boys and butchers them and he puts them in a, brine, a big barrel to brine them and like serve them to his customers. Uh, and Nicholas comes along and happens to be staying in the same inn and recognizes that, oh, you know, this guy's a murderer. And there's and so he you know reconstitutes the boys out of the barrel and brings them back to life. Um, so you've got Nicholas, the wonder worker, who's like wow. caring for kids. Right. And I mean, these, these are amazing stories. And if you look. So, I mean, you can Google um, like these little chocolate molds. Um, you can still find them like on eBay that of St. Nicholas, like wearing a bishop's mitre. And it has like a little barrel next to him with three boys. Like that's the story, right? That this little chocolate mold is telling. Wow. Um, so, so, yeah. So how does he get associated with Christmas? Well, basically this is a story of Christianity itself, right? Because Protestants aren't interested in these stories of these saints, but like you've got this gift giver, you've got this beloved gift giver and traditions associated with him. So, uh, He's he's very important in uh, in Holland, uh, Saint Nicholas is, and with we have Dutch immigrants to New York in the 19th century, who are still you know using Saint Nicholas and Saint Nicholas's Day as an important day of of gift giving, etc. Um, he kind of slides a little bit later in the calendar. And then with uh, Clement, especially uh, Clement Clark Moore's poem, which we know is Twas the Night Before Christmas, but it's also known as uh, the original title is A Visit from St. Nicholas. No, he's not called Santa Claus. He's never called Santa Claus in that story, or that poem. It's always either St. Nicholas or St. Nick. But you've got the genesis here of it, not some Christian saint, not some Christian bishop, but he's presented what? As all, everything we know, as an elf, right? He's got reindeer. He lands on the, on the, on the rooftop. And then visually speaking, in the, the middle of the 19th century, uh, with the illustrations by Thomas Nast, uh, who was an illustrator for Harper's Magazine, and he, was, he would draw these pro-union, this during the Civil War, right? He would draw these pro-union cartoons uh, that then also included images of Santa Claus. So you begin to see more and more sort of elfin and elf-like uh, uh, features associated with this now no longer St. Nick, but then this other sort of name begins to develop. So it, it happens slowly, um, but, it, um, but basically as a result of Dutch immigration to New York and as a result of, you know, was the night before Christmas, Thomas Nast's illustrations and some other things that are happening in mid-19th century America, Santa Claus is a fully American creation. Wow. And that, so the idea of Father Christmas, is that something that is in Europe, European tradition? Yeah, that's more of a British tradition, right? Um, where, you know, so for example, if you're, um, 
you can pull up the, uh, you can go to archive.org and you can pull, can pull up the original first edition of uh, Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol from 1843, I think is the first edition. Um, and if you page through it, there's wonderful illustrations. And of course, the, uh, the ghost of, uh, uh, of, of Christmas present um, looks like Father Christmas. It's, you know, greened and garlanded and, you know, it has a wreath on his head, etc. That's not Santa Claus, right? This is not St. Nicholas here, but is it's this personification, you know, of the Christmas spirit, right? So Father Christmas is, uh, is something different. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's interesting how those all kind of come up in, uh, on their own, and then they kind of get brought together in this time period of December. Um, yeah. What's even more interesting is when you go back far enough, you have the Saturnalia festival, which mm-hmm. also was about gift giving and, you know, stopping the working and everybody kind of living and jolly living, like enjoying yourself for the time. And you want, you have to wonder how much of that gets transferred over because those are, those are fun traditions. You don't want to just cancel those. You want to keep those going. That's right. You know, yeah, yeah, you keep them going, but you, uh, you know, you give a different story to go along with it, right? Um, yeah, and but I would say that you know the that the importance of gift giving to children um, associated with Christmas really is something. I mean, this is not just me saying this, but this is something that happens in uh, in a concrete way, really only beginning in the middle of the nineteenth century. In part because of what I've just been talking about, but right. also in part because of Dickens and because of you know Tiny Tiny Tim and like Christmas Charity, you know the rise of the Salvation Army, the rise of you know this idea of uh, of giving to the poor at Christmas time. That's a very nineteenth century phenomenon. Prior to that, you know, Christmas was you know drunken revelry, right? Um, and you know it was it was much more akin to what you're talking about with a Roman feast of Saturnalia um, f- for centuries, right? This was um, this was, it was not a domestic sort of family centered, child centered holiday. This was a big drunken feast. Wow. I, yeah. I learned a lot from this. This was a fascinating conversation. The link for the book is in the description. Any last thoughts? Um, any, and you mentioned you have your new book project coming out, which might be for a lot while from now, but anything else besides that? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I kind of, in terms of my work, um, I like writing books rather than articles and uh, writing Cult of the Dead and having interest and a readership that goes beyond just an academic circle has been um, extraordinarily rewarding to me and it was a great project. Uh, I enjoyed it more than anything I've, I've, I've ever done. It was by far the hardest but also by far the most enjoyable thing I've ever written and so that's what I want to kind of stick with uh, with this St. Nicholas project as well. So but you just have to wait a, wait a little while till that one's done. Well I highly recommend it and it's packed with tons of information. It's well worth it. Check it out. Links in the description. Thank you for your time and you have just attained true gnosis. You have just attained true gnosis. The Demiurge has no power over you.